Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you. Lovely to be with you. Um, who here is a fan of a detective story? Detective novel, detective film. Uh, there's always a brilliant moment in a detective film where somebody, the hero detective, reveals that not everything is as it appeared to be. Not everything is as it appeared to be. There are some classic ones um, throughout uh, cinematic history. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen the film Knives Out, which is quite recent, or Glass Onion. Uh, Lisa, the, the cinematic professional, has seen them. I reckon if you like a detective film, I massively recommend them. Uh, they are, are brilliant. So uh, that's Knives Out and Glass Onion. Has anybody seen uh, Usual Suspects, a bit of an iconic film? Yeah, yeah, amazing film. And it, I swear you should watch it because there's this moment where it's revealed who the bad guy is and you are literally like, what, how, how, how can that be, how can that be? And the first time I watched it, I then watched, I, I actually wound back, these are in the days of VHS, wound back all the way to the start of the film and what, it might actually be the DVD, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I wound back and I watched it, skipped through it again, and I went, how can it be possible that it was that person? You've got to watch it. Um, and when we think about detective films, we often think about Agatha Christie, don't we? And I'm going to show you a clip, if we're able to. It might take Tom just a second to sort this out, uh, which is a clip from the 1974 version of Murder on the Orient Express. This is Albert Finney playing Poirot, and this is the moment when he reveals that not everything is as it had first appeared.
and uh, the, the shot starts at the back of the train carriage and as he starts to reveal the truth, it goes further forward and further forward until it's right looking at his face. It's a fascinating clip and he says, um, he, he says a few things that are very relevant to this passage. One of them is that he has, was being deliberately maneuvered, deliberately maneuvered to see something that wasn't true. And in a clumsy way, there's the, there's the smashed watch, which had stopped at 1.15. And there was lots of other things uh, that were supposed to trick him. But then, actually, the truth was revealed to him. Supposing the crime had not been committed earlier. <laughs> Albert Finney, he's got nothing on me, has he? Um, Mark writes his gospel, which we're going to focus on, which Louise gladly, uh, kindly read. Um, Mark writes his gospel a little bit like a murder mystery. You could say, is it a, a whodunit? You know, was it the Jewish leaders who done it? Was it the Romans? Was it Judas? Uh, you know, lots of theories of atonement. Was it his heavenly father or was it his own will? Uh, but it's, that's very interesting, but it's really not true to the gospel. It's not so much a whodunit. It's more of a who is he. Mark writes his gospel as a bit of a murder detective mystery. Who is he? Who is this bloke, Jesus? And it does have a bit of a detective feel to it. There's only one place in Mark's whole gospel, one verse, where he says who he believes Jesus is. And that's the very first verse of, the, of Mark's gospel, which says, this is the beginning of the story of Jesus, uh, who was the Son of God. And everything after that, he leaves up to us to find out. And the ending is just as mysterious. Have a look at Mark's Gospels, uh, if you've got it in front of you. It's, uh, the passage we're going to look at is at, pa at page 956 in the Pew Bibles. But have you ever looked at the end of Mark's Gospel? There's a bit right at the end of Mark's Gospel where... Um, it says, oh yeah, but Jesus didn't really just stay dead. He came back to life and he appeared to everybody, which is kind of the conventional end to uh, the Christian gospel. But m a lot of scholars believe that Mark didn't write that. He left it hanging. He left it kind of so that um, the, the conclusion, the real, oh, who was he? The real moment of revelation happens in us after we've read it. So you'll see in your in your. Uh, book that there's, it says that you know most reliable manuscripts or you know earliest manuscripts do not have this part of Mark's gospel. Fascinating, isn't it? Because he writes it kind of as a detective novel where we get to be Poirot. There are a couple of moments when uh, Mark, I mean, all the way along, Mark is leaving clues about who Jesus is so that we can pick them up. And there are two moments which are really, really clear uh, where Mark is kind of shouting, yeah, look, he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. It's him. It's true. And one of those is at his baptism where Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and heaven opens. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son who I, in whom I'm well pleased. Believe in him. The second moment is this moment that we looked at together, which is, um, which is very similar. It's the transfiguration. And similarly, again, there's a moment where from a cloud, 
uh, a voice comes, this is my son who, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So let's look at this passage together. And I really want to just to look at three things. Uh, firstly, this idea of it being about revelation. It's a revelation. Secondly, I want to look at what the revelation is of. And thirdly, I want to ask the so what question. What has it got to do with us? Okay. So um, we'll go through that and it won't take long. Don't worry. So if you turn to page 956 and Mark's gospel, the transfiguration begins at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. Now, whenever you, uh, as soon as audiences in the first century had heard this, they, he led them up a, a tall mountain. They would have been like on the edge of their seats. They would have been, oh, right, well, that's significant. Something's going to happen. Because throughout their history, moments of encounter with God happened up mountains. It's, it's become uh, something in our culture ourselves. The, the expression ascending the mountain, sometimes that feels like kind of overcoming a challenge, but actually there's another sense. Ascending the mountain is you go to a place where you might encounter the divine, where you might encounter something transcendent. I can uh, give you some examples. So students of the classics, any students of the classics here, anyone fans of Dante's divine comedy here? Okay, uh, but in Dante's Divine Comedy, which I haven't read, I'd like to one day. I bought it, but not read it. It's, uh, so, you know, I think I'm almost there. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Uh, there's this moment, Dante is guided through uh, hell and purgatory and eventually uh, into heaven. But his progress from hell up to heaven is, is uh, described by Dante, the, the author, as an ascent up a mountain until he reaches the summit of the mountain and he he attains a beatific vision, which means he sees God. So he climbs up a mountain and he sees God. Uh, Any Tolkien fans in the house? Yeah, now we're getting a bit more. No, still nobody? Lord of the Rings? Anyone? Yes, okay, a bit better. Uh, So the final trilogy, book in the trilogy, Frodo and Sam, they ascend the mountain of doom. It's all about um, a personal challenge and things that are really revealed in their hearts to be true. And and on that journey, the moment of of total revelation of truth is when uh, Frodo then decides to throw the ring. I'm going to spoil it if I'm not careful. Uh, any Disney fans? Lion King, anyone? Yes, Lisa, thank you. Some, a bit of nodding, yes, Louise. Thank you, Cara. How is Simba revealed? Where is Simba revealed to be the true king? Where is Simba revealed to be the true king? Anyone? At the top of Pride Rock. He climbs up Pride Rock and is at the top and is revealed there to be the king. So in our culture... Ascending a mountain is a, a metaphor for things being revealed, truth being shown. But that's even more so if you were in, seeped in the Hebrew culture. So Mark's writing this, and he knows the people listening to him are going to be going, well, okay, they've gone up a hill. That's going to be important. Because Moses went up a hill to meet with God, came down with a shining face, as well as the Ten Commandments. Elijah encountered God on Mount Horeb. You remember in the not in the earthquake, not in the storm, but in the still small voice. 
all of that revelation of who God really is happened at the top of a mountain. So if you are steeped in that kind of culture and you read about Jesus taking up Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain, you're going, oh, this is going to be a revelation of who God is. And so it turns out to be. And it's even confirmed by the fact that Moses himself, who met God on the high top, and Elijah, who met God at the mountaintop, are there with Jesus. So this is a moment of huge significance. That's what Mark is telling us. Then what happens, uh, verse 2, he is transfigured before him. His clothes became dazzling white. Tom, I'm going to ask you to run that clip in just a second. Uh, his clothes were dazzling white. Uh, for a person of a certain age, that makes you think about washing powder, doesn't it? He was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, even Shane Ritchie. If you remember the 80s adverts, this doorstep challenge, uh, Daz Powder. And Tom is going to show you a clip of one such 1980s advert. You're buying the leading powder, why? It's just habit. I pick it up off the shelf every time. Would you swap for Daz? Not really, no. Lucy, we persuaded you to try Daz in the hot whites wash. I'm very impressed. This t-shirt, for instance, I picked up for one of my friend's children. Straight down the front went the chocolate. And it's come up beautifully white. This tablecloth had a dinner party. Wine food over it. Again, beautiful. It's like new. Daz costs less than my other powder. And the results are fantastic. Will you swap for two packets of your old powder? No. No, I'll stay with Daz. I'm very happy with it. Try Biological Daz yourself in the hot whites wash. Most women agree Daz gives unbeatable white at a price that's right. Very 1980s, isn't it? I love that. Most women agree that Daz is unbeatable in the white wash. The fellas didn't have a clue, did they? What? You say, I mean, maybe if Jesus had taken up uh, some women up the top of the mountain, they would have been like, yeah, this doesn't mean he's God, this means he's using Daz. The blokes were like, why? why? How did he get his clothes so white? He must be God. I mean, uh, okay. Fortunately, that's not the case. But brilliant, isn't it? Most women agree. Um, but the point is, it's not about whiteness, is it? So it's not about his clothes being especially white. The whiteness is, is, a, is to do with the light. It's to do with blinding light. And that blinding light is, is, is not even to do with light even. It's to do with the presence of a huge power. I'm going, doing a lot of uh, film clips and film references today, but who remembers Raiders of the Lost Ark? When Indy opens the Ark of the Covenant and the German soldiers are totally blinded, they can't see anything, they fall over, they fear they're going to be destroyed. And so then, I don't know, Indiana Jones gets to win the day somehow. I can't quite remember. But it's a bit like that here, isn't it? When Moses went up the mountain to get the tablets of stone, when he came down, he, his face was shining so bright from having been with God that he had to wear a veil. Because, not because people were going to have their retinas burned like it was kind of some solar eclipse. It was because they were afraid. They were terrified because they had seen somebody who had been in the presence of God. And that's what it's like here. That's what is going on. It's not that he had washed his clothes in an amazing, with amazing powder, or particularly that it was light. It's power. It's about authority. 
But the other thing which is really interesting about this is that it's kind of light means revelation. Something comes to light. Something is revealed. And that's the main thing that we're supposed to get from the dazzling whiteness. It's about power, but it's also about revelation. The God who said, let there be light in Genesis 1 is in the business of revealing himself. God is light and light is God. Moses' shining face meant that he had power, but it also, it, sorry, it meant that he met God and God was powerful, but it also meant it's truth. When the Israelites saw his face, they knew that what he was going to tell them was true. And that's what's going on here too. Mark's gospel is all about this revealed, this mystery being revealed. Who is Jesus? And not everybody will see. Some eyes will be blinded. And if you were to split back to uh, Mark 8, the chapter before this one, you'd see Jesus telling parables about people having their eyes blinded, not seeing the truth that is evident before them. Um, do you still not see? Do you still not understand, he's saying? This up the top of the mountain for the disciples and for their eyes is a Poirot moment. Not everything is as it appeared to be. The truth has been hiding right in front of your eyes. And then, fin then finally about this revelation, the revelation is, is confirmed by this voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. As I said, this is the second time that this voice from heaven comes. The first time was his baptism. And it is kind of like, I mean, often we read that in a quite a neutral voice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. But I like to think that maybe in light of what Mark's saying, you know, God, the voice from heaven could be saying, this is my son. You know, you've been struggling to believe it. You've been kind of getting some hints. It's a bit of a mystery. But this is my son. Listen him so what has this got to do with us that's the question isn't it the again if we look at the passage the disciples are, have their eyes kind of blinded and poor Peter verse 5 Peter said to Jesus rabbi it is good for us to be here let us put up three shelters one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah and then it says in brackets in verse 6 he didn't know what to say he was because they were all so frightened. It doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to say. Hey, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here with you, uh, the uh, incarnation of God himself, and Moses and Elijah, our greatest prophets of all time. That seems like a very reasonable thing to say. And the poor bloke has just been hit by some kind of divine flash bang. So, you know, it's not surprising that he's a bit bewildered and a bit confused. But actually, the point of the mountaintop experience and what Mark is trying to say about Peter still not getting it, Peter being confused, is that the point of the mountaintop experience is not to stay at the mountaintop, nice as that might be. The point of the mountaintop experience is that you experience it and then you use that light to guide you when you get into the darkness again, the darkness of every day, the gray in the valley. And also, they needed to realize Peter needed to realize, James and John needed to realize, it wasn't about them. They weren't being revealed this stuff so that they could just enjoy it. What would be the point of Moses going up Mount, the Mount, whichever Mount he went up, 
and getting the Ten Commandments and just be like, well, that's cool. Let's hang out here with the Ten Commandments and the law. It would, that would be pointless. He was being commissioned to take that down to the, to the people of Israel so that they could live God's way in the midst of the valley. And that's also the case here with Peter, James, and John. They are not given this revelation so that they can kind of hang about in it and just enjoy it. They're given it so that they can share it with others. And so it is with us. The Jewish people got a bit confused. Um, they had begun to believe that being God's chosen people was just about like them being special. But actually, they were told to be a light to the nations. And uh, that's about going down from the mountaintop into the valley, the gray of every day. Because that's the way that salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. And that's the case for us too. Our faith is not about how good it feels to be here on a Sunday together. Our faith is about what we do Monday to Saturday out there. Somebody said once, and I think this is brilliant, that um, you don't, the entertainment, the main event of the Christian life is not here. Uh, this is like the halftime talk in the middle of the premiership football match. You don't pay your money to go and watch a bunch of people sweating in a changing room, you know, getting instructions from their manager. You go to watch what they do when they come out of the changing room and go onto the pitch. The pitch for us is out there. The pitch for Peter, James, and John was in the valley. It wasn't about hanging out uh, in the presence of God and having a good time, just as it's not about hanging out in the presence of God here and having a good time. It's about what we take out with us. The other thing that's, uh, that then happens is the cloud appears and God says, this is my son whom I love and listen to him. But then suddenly, as soon, just as soon as it has happened, it stops. They looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. No Moses, no Elijah, no cloud with a you know, voice of God and presumably no Daz White Jesus, just the ordinary version. One of the great mysteries of faith is that revelation of God is kind of hidden. It's kind of a hidden revelation. It's a partial thing. Some, there are some days when we like see God, don't we? Like Margaret was telling that story just now about like she's been praying for months for reconciliation in her family. Months and years. And then just recently it came. It happened. And it's so clear to Margaret that that was because of her prayers and God has done it. But then, you know, next week she might have a, a son and a daughter might fall out again and then she'd be like, oh, come on, I thought this was God. And then there are moments of revelation. There are moments on the mountaintop, but then there are moments in the valley. Who knows why it is? Paul, writing into the Second Corinthians, says... Um, the second Corinthians, not the first Corinthians, he's writing to the second Corinthians. No, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says that we cannot see the light, we can't see the gospel and the glory of Christ because the God of this age has blinded our eyes, blinded our minds. It's a different sermon to go into why that is, but it's just a truth. We don't see clearly every day. Paul says in uh, Corinthians somewhere else, 
um, that we see through a glass darkly, but one day we'll see face to face. We know in part, but one day we will, we will know completely, even as we are fully known. Somewhere else he says, we are God's children, um, and, but it's not clear what we will be in the future when Jesus comes. We, we get a bit now, but there's more later. Be encouraged, because there are days, uh, the, the stuff that you see every, here in the moments of revelation like Margaret had, you sometimes think, why is it not like that all the time? And that's a mystery. We don't know the answer. But be encouraged, because Jesus encouraged the disciples. It's not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to get a glimpse so that then you act on faith. And one day we will see fully the goodness of God. One day we will live in a world where there's no more tears and no more illness and no more death. But in the meantime, we're supposed to hold on to what we have seen in those glorious moments. And finally, that is what happens for the disciples. As they came down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So again, not to tell people, it's like the the mystery, the detective mystery continues. But there is one day when they are to tell people. I wonder how many, uh, how many days Peter had when he couldn't quite believe what he'd seen on the mountaintop. You know, Peter had a tough life. He had to lead the church. He was imprisoned. He was uh, persecuted. Eventually, we believe he was executed. How many days did he go, all oh, right, can I still believe that Jesus is that person that I met in the dazzling white robes? When Nick started the service, he described this as a low day. And it's funny, isn't it? We, we call like Easter and Christmas, they're high days and holidays, aren't they? Holy days. Holidays comes from holy days. But there are also low days. And I don't know about you, I know what a low day feels like. I'm sure some of you do too. There are days I feel on top of the world. And there are days I feel I can't put one foot in front of another. And that is the human experience. And I'm sure Peter, James, and John could relate. And this is what I'll finish on. Why can't it always be like that? Why can't it always be like the high days? Why can't it always be like those moments when we feel God close? That's one of the great mysteries. But the promise that we're given is that one day it will be. That one day we will be with God the full, in his fullness. We'll see him and we'll know him even like he sees us and knows us now. And in the meantime... We're given a taste of it. We're given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a promise of what is to come. Some now, more later. And in the meantime, we are called to bear witness, even in the midst of the gray days of the valley, about the, the hope that we have, about the person that we have met in Jesus and the truth that he is a revelation of God. I don't know if you, it's a bit of a cheesy metaphor, but you know that thing about air travel, when you, uh, you go above the clouds uh, in the airplane and you're like, oh, it's really sunny up here. And then you're like, of course it's really sunny, because 
it's sunny all the time. It's just that the clouds are sometimes there, you know? Like, it's, the definition of a sunny day is it's got no clouds. You know, every day is sunny if you're above the clouds. Uh, and I think that's a little bit like life, isn't it? We don't always feel the sunny days. We don't always see the light. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. All is not as it sometimes appears to be. And the commission for James and John and Peter and the commission for us is to be Poirot, is to be people who live our lives giving that revelation that not everything is as it appears to be. There is a different reality that is hidden before us, and it's a glorious reality. It's a truthful reality. It's a reality that brings justice, that brings healing. It's a reality that brings truth to light. And it's our commission, like Peter, James, and John, to reveal that mystery to a world that is so in need, that is confused, blinded, befuddled, that doesn't see the truth, that can't see the truth. And we need to be Poirot. We're the ones that reveal that. Amen.